with Emily Chang. And this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, U.S. stocks oscillating as investors rush to position after the latest comments from Fed Chair Jay Powell saying a recession could indeed lie ahead. We'll speak with Shopify President Harley Finkelstein about how it's all impacting consumers and where the company is placing its bets when it comes to the future of e-commerce. Plus, Slack unveils a slew of new features for a hybrid work world. CEO Stuart Butterfield, who's been building companies since before the dot-com boom and bust, will join us. We'll also get his view on the market meltdown. And Jeffrey Katzenberg joins to talk about the future of entertainment and disrupting legacy industries. Plus, we'll get his thoughts on what's happening at Netflix and Disney. All of that in a moment, but first I want to look at the markets with our very own Ed Ludlow. Ed, walk us through the day, and obviously everyone listening to those comments yeah. from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Yeah, so like all eyes on the Fed, and equity markets a little bit softer. We're down by less than two-tenths of a percent, both on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100. And nothing really changed in terms of what Fed Powell said on the outlook for rates. The conversation is around whether they can deliver a so-called soft landing. In other words, fight inflation without causing a recession. The quote being it will be extremely challenging. You see tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 index down by two-tenths of a percent-ish, snapping two-day rally, a short-lived rally, yields coming down by 12 basis points on the 10-year, and Bitcoin below $20,000, kind of caught up in the move with equities in this risk-off environment. But you know how I like to do it. Let's take a step back. Let's look at the last few days of trading and look at this in the context of what we've seen in markets recently, especially on the NASDAQ 100. When you think about all of the news of the last seven days, we started with that Fed meeting a week ago where we got a clearer picture at the outlook for rates. We're going to be at three to 0.253.5% on interest rates by the end of this year. We're kind of trading sideways. And then today, the market not really making its mind up. Has anything materially changed? Was anything actually that new in what Fed Powell said throughout the session? What I'm hearing in the markets is that really, no. But we swung between gains and losses. At one point in the session, you saw big tech up quite highly. There were some really interesting movers, though, that we can talk about in a minute. And the one thing I would say is that we're thinking clearly about recession risk. And the conversation is not necessarily if there's a recession, it's about when there's a recession. Indeed. And obviously, there's a lot of big tech news that's driving some of these moves. I'm thinking about Amazon. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, partly 
what we're looking at as well in the news flow is that all of these stocks are trying to take trading in lockstep. So you look on my board, Tesla down four tenths of one percent. At one point, it'd been one of the biggest drivers pushing the index higher. Amazon up by a quarter of a percentage point. Netflix up four point seven percent in the session. There was actual news with it when it came to Netflix. So. The Wall Street Journal reporting that they are now considering a tier of subscription that is ad-supported. We know that that's something they discussed at their most recent earnings as an idea. But according to this report, they are talking to partners like Google and Comcast in partnerships on ads. Altria down 9% very quick, according to a Dow Jones report that regulators considering pulling the dual product in which Altria has a stake completely from the US market. How long has it been since you and I discussed dual? It went from the impact on children, flavored products with dual, to now reports of it being pulled from the US market altogether and that having a really material impact on Altria shares this Wednesday. All right. Uh, thank you for the roundup. Well, retail and e-commerce companies have been under pressure in the midst of rising inflation and market turmoil. but. Shopify shares took a leg up today after a slew of announcements targeted at the changing nature of consumers. I want to talk about all this and more with Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify. Harley, we've got a lot of news to get to, a lot of announcements that you made, and we'll talk about that. But first, I want to get your, your sense of what is happening with the economy. Shopify hasn't necessarily been spared here. But what's your feeling about just how bad this will get and if a recession is inevitable? Uh, thanks for having me, Emily. Always a, a great pleasure to be on your show. Two things. Let's first talk about the retail outlook and I think consumer sentiment. What we are seeing is that re there, there's certainly some, some retail rebounds happening in areas like in-person retail, um, and we are well positioned there. I mentioned on the earnings call last quarter that we saw physical retail GMV up by nearly 80% year on year. Um, and then when we add things like, you know, we, one of the announcements today was local inventory sync on Google and tap to pay, uh, we really are well positioned to ensure that if physical retail is rebalancing and reopens, that Shopify merchants can also use that as well. But one of the things we're seeing from a, a sort of a macro perspective is that consumers are very much still voting with their dollars to support independent brands. This is something we saw happen very quickly and, and, and intensely during the pandemic. They are looking for quality products and, and, and certainly a lot of the Shopify merch are doing well there. In terms of the economy in general, it's clear that obviously inflation is at a record level, but to the degree in which merchants' wallets are stretched from higher prices, what they're beginning to do is they're looking to get more value out of every single dollar. And what we're seeing is that more merchants are coming out to Shopify and they're taking more of our products, whether it's capital or payments or fulfillment, they're leveraging our massive economies of scale while still keeping uh, an independent business. So um, we, we, we think both those things lead to a lot of optimism on our side. And of course, Shopify Editions was launched today. Right. You are making this big shift from D to C to C to C, as you call it, direct to consumer to connect to consumer. What does that mean and why do you think that's the future? So this idea of Shopify Editions, which we announced this morning uh, at uh, 9.30 a.m., it introduces what we're calling uh, the connect to consumer era of commerce. And part of it is that you know, the speed of innovation and the depth and breadth of what Shopify is building. I celebrated my, my 12th year anniversary last week at Shopify. So I've been around for about a third of my life. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the, the amount of products that we are shipping right now is is stronger than, than ever before. We unveiled more than 100 new product updates and launches today. And I think we are moving faster than ever. And, and Shopify Editions is our way of sharing that momentum with the world. Now, I think, you know, if you've, I've been on the show a lot talking about direct to consumer, which really was about this one-to-one -one connection 
connection with the brand to the consumer, but it was very transactional. What we are noticing is that more and more consumers want to connect with these brands online, on social media, they want to attend an event or their store. They want to have more of an emotional connection whereby they can connect with brands across a whole bunch of different uh, surface areas. And so commerce is really just not about the transaction, it's much deeper. And we think C2C really places more authenticity and loyalty and trust at the heart of hmm. every single merchant interaction. And, uh, and so a lot of the products you saw today is really about us ushering in this new model for commerce. You're also striking a big partnership with Twitter to help businesses reach buyers there. And I just wonder why now when Twitter is facing all of this uncertainty about whether Elon Musk buys the company or not, and if this partnership will hold up in a new regime. We think the future of retail is going to be retail everywhere. It's going to be online and offline on social media. It's going to be in person at, at farmers markets, uh, at events and concerts. We really are, you know, I think we started as being an e-commerce company and, you know, about 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. now flows through Shopify. If we were one single aggregated store, we would be the second largest online store in America. But the key here is that commerce in the future will happen everywhere. And so we, we've announced, I've come on the show and talked about our integrations with Google and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok to embed commerce there. And then the newest one that we're embedding, the newest partner we're embedding commerce with is Twitter. Now, Twitter is an interesting one. Of course, they're in the news a lot lately. But, you know, if you think about where commerce used to happen, it was always sort of around the town square. It's where the baker sold bread and the cobbler sold shoes. Twitter, in some ways, is the modern day digital town square. And so embedding commerce right into Twitter so you can turn conversation into commerce, all powered by Shopify, we think is a really great thing. And, and whether or not you know they have a, a new owner in the future or not, I think commerce will play a role in Twitter's future. Okay, I recently interviewed Amazon CEO Andy Jassy Harley, and I'm not sure if you caught this, but when I asked about Amazon's relationship with third-party sellers and the tension that has existed there between Amazon and some third-party sellers, he took kind of a dig at Shopify. Take a listen to what he had to say. Sellers don't really long for e-commerce software. That exists in lots of places. And, uh, and it's not very expensive. What they love about selling on Amazon is that they get access to our hundreds of millions of customers. And that completely changes what their prospects can be in terms of the businesses they're building. What's your response to that? I think that uh, it is quite clear that the future of retail is going to have direct connection between brands and the consumers. Look, I mean, Obviously, a place like Amazon allows third-party sellers to access a very large network of consumers. But if you look at any of these marketplaces, you as a merchant, you are not building your own business. You are effectively renting customers from the marketplace. And I think for some merchants, that matters. But for a lot of merchants, if you think about your favorite brands or mine, James Purse or the Albert shoes I'm wearing or Bombas <laughs> socks I'm wearing, they want to have a direct relationship with the people that are buying their, their products. And I think that more and more you see consumers, again, choosing to go direct whenever possible. So I, I think there's a place for marketplaces. And obviously, Amazon has done a great, a great, uh, a great thing there and, and is very valuable in that way. But I think consumers also want to have a direct relationship with the brands they're buying from. And that's the reason why you see companies like Mattel and Crayola and Herman Miller and Procter and Gamble use Shopify to go direct to consumer. These are brands that traditionally never did so. And now they're doing that. Now, Harley, you know, Shopify shares have taken a, a, a pretty big dive uh, since November where they hit a, hit a high point. And obviously, we're in the middle of a of broader market turmoil. But how concerned are you about this and going forward? You know, how are you thinking about this? What are investors missing? 
I think Shopify was certainly uh, a pandemic story. And I think obviously, you know, the, the stock reflected that. But I think what what a lot of people are missing about the Shopify story is that on, on one hand, we're 10% of all e-commerce in the US. So we have massive scale at the same time, and those economies of scale that come with it. At the same time, the 2 million stores on Shopify have an independent business. At the same time that happens, every 30 seconds or so, a brand new entrepreneur gets their first sale on Shopify. That means we are not only getting a larger piece of the pie, we're growing the pie itself. And all those stores that end up, businesses that end up being really successful will stay on Shopify indefinitely. And that's why you see companies like Figs and Allbirds go public and, and Gymshark and all these amazing brands that were built at their mom's kitchen table that are now category leaders mm -hmm. built on Shopify. I also want to ask about... Uh, uh, sure. I also yeah, want to ask about your, go, go ahead, finish your point. I was going to say, in, in terms of, so I think we were a pandemic story. I think what, what often people miss is we're also this reopening story. Again, 80% of our, uh, 80, we had 80% growth in point of sale GMV. We have thousands of stores all over the world that use Shopify to power their physical store. You know, we saw social embedded commerce on services like Instagram and TikTok uh, and now Twitter grow almost 400% year on year last quarter. So Shopify is really more than just an e-commerce provider or, or a pandemic story. We really are the world's retail operating system. And again, look at every one of your favorite brands or anyone listening, look at your favorite brands. You will start seeing shop pay as the payment gateway. You will start seeing Shopify power those brands. That's really important to us. And that's the reason why I think our future is very bright. I also want to ask about your evolving governance story. Shopify recently made some changes to enhance Toby Lutka, the CEO's power. Some shareholders did oppose these changes. What are you hearing from, from shareholders now, you know, in terms of concerns about this change and what has been Shopify's response? I've spent the last few weeks with uh, some of our, our largest investors and, 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 and frankly, a lot of investors generally. And I think um, one, we're, you know, we're grateful for their trust and continue to run the business. But the, the goal here really was modernizing our governance structure. We want to be a hundred year company. We're about 16 years, 16 years into it. So we got a lot more time, 84 years left to go. And we want to ensure that we can run our business and make really good long-term decisions for investors, for merchants, for, for every stakeholder that's involved with Shopify. And we think this modernization, particularly around the governance structure allows us to do that. I'll also tell you, having spent so much time with investors lately, that some of these investors that have been with us for the last seven years, since the IPO in May 2015, they believe uh, more in Shopify now than ever before, and, and we're grateful for that. But uh, we got a lot of room to grow, and, and, and we have a lot of new opportunities in front of us. All right. Harley Finkelstein, always appreciate you joining us. Thanks for taking a wide range of questions today. Appreciate it. Coming up. Slack's annual conference is underway in New York. They're also introducing a slew of upgrades. I'm going to speak to Slack CEO and co-founder Stuart Butterfield next about how this will all impact the evolving future of work next. This is Bloomberg. in New York right now, Slack Frontiers, the company's annual conference where they've unveiled the latest innovations to a product that's become integral to the hybrid workplace. Joining us now, Stuart Butterfield, Slack co-founder and CEO, joining us from our studios in New York. Stuart, great to have you back with us and thanks for coming in. Among the many announcements today, you're building out Slack huddles, adding this new video feature. And I'm curious, with video conferencing, a very crowded market, what's the unique niche that you hope Slack's offering will fill? Yeah, thank you, Emily. It's, um, 
It's a little bit different than, than a video call. So huddles, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, used by tens of millions of people a week on Slack. And up till now, they've been audio only, and the intention is a little bit different than like a call that has a scheduled start time and end time. They're more for serendipitous, spontaneous conversations. And they've been really valuable in that respect. Fastest growing feature in Slack's history, people love it. Um, so we're adding a little bit more of a co-working space. And I think there's a difference between, on the one hand, meetings, and the other hand, people working together and happening to use computers at the same time. We're definitely on the far left edge of that spectrum. And I think that uh, I, like all of the people in the audience, uh, will be on many, many more video calls um, years from now. But I think there's also like a, a whole set of tools that kind of became obvious that they're desirable during the, the pandemic, but we're just starting to, to see some of them now. Some of them will come from Slack, some of them will come from others. It's actually a pretty exciting time in enterprise software in so far as enterprise software can be exciting at all. Indeed, of course, you know, there's competition here from Zoom and Google Meet and Microsoft Teams and Cisco WebEx. And in the same way that you're kind of moving on to, let's say, Zoom's turf a little bit, you've got Zoom announcing some chat features. Are, are you at all concerned about them taking Slack market share? No, not at all. And, and um, to be clear, we at Slack are a happy Zoom customer, and I d don't uh, expect that to, to go anywhere. There just is a lot of um, use cases that uh, that aren't covered by the 30-minute the uh, video call. There's also a huge amount of stuff that Zoom does that I don't think Slack will ever do, and also vice versa. But um, we're at this moment where it really feels like, I mean, I'm personally as optimistic as I ever have been in the last 20 years, but it really feels like there's an opportunity to create a couple of brand new categories. And in, in the same way that everyone has the standard set of email and calendar and word processor and spreadsheet, there's a couple more slots there that um, uh, the pandemic made clear were, were really important. And so we're excited to spend a lot of time experimenting there and, uh, and releasing new stuff. Now, you don't have to worry about this as much now that Slack is part of Salesforce. And I wonder actually if there's some relief that you actually don't have to worry about the market meltdown. But you've been building companies for more than 20 years. You lived through the dot-com boom and bust. What's your take on what's happening with the economy right now? If Elon Musk has a super bad feeling about it, how does Stuart <laughs> Butterfield think, feel? Well, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty old at this point. I graduated from high school in, in 91, so I worked through the 1992 um, recession, uh, right through the dot-com crash, that whole roller coaster, uh, 2008, of course, as well, and a couple of other littler ones. Um, I don't want to suggest that there's no dislocation and there's no like immediate negative impact for a lot of people um, in the short term, but at the market level, I see this um, kind of working itself out over maybe it's six months if we're super, super lucky, maybe if it's 18 months, um, if it's a little bit more uh, realistic. But we do come out the other side and so many great companies, including Slack, were started, you know, we the company that became Slack started in 2009, kind of right in the in the absolute bottom part of the trough. Um, so I think there's also a lot more opportunity now. Interesting. Um, so how do you think Silicon Valley looks different after this? I mean, if it's not a major dislocation, is it just a sort of evolution? Yeah, I mean, so the, if we're talking about like just stock prices, I think multiples have come down to a pretty realistic level now. And so now we'll see if people can deliver the earnings that are expected, um, we'll kind of stay in the same box for a while. Um, the, the bigger question is, is uh, whether that whether we imagine a recession that would really impact this. But I think something else is going on at the same time, which is we've really realized 
the importance of all the digital infrastructure that supports productivity and collaboration. And just to make that like a little bit more tangible for people, if you go back to March of 2020 and imagine like a parallel universe where you could keep traveling for work and use conference rooms and commute, go to the office, all of that stuff, but you took away the software, all of these companies would have just disintegrated in like 24 hours. So at some point in the last 20 years, we switched from a world where the physical HQ was more important than the, the, the digital to the other way around. And yes, we use digital HQ as a marketing term, but I just mean, um, obviously all of these companies continue to exist. And when that happens, I think there's a lot more interest in investment. You know, the worst case scenario is a, is a chief information officer who views technology as like, HVAC for the building, like you're just trying to get it as cheap as possible as opposed to an investment in the organization's overall effectiveness and the latter case is really what we're seeing with customers. Now Slack is becoming more and more integral to all kinds of workforces and has been in the news recently because the January 6th committee has asked Twitter for Slack messages tied to their decision to ban former President Trump, etc. I'm so curious for your thoughts on this. If Slack is, has been subpoenaed, I know Twitter has refused to hand this, this information over. And if you were subpoenaed, if Slack would comply? Um, I got to be honest, now at this point, I have no idea if we've been subpoenaed or not. I don't think so. Um, you know, obviously, we have a, a range of customers. In fact, that what a softball opportunity to mention uh, we also announced gov slack today the fed ramp high version of slack used by like lockheed martin and the u.s army software factory um, but there's a lot of different compliance requirements message retention rules and, and stuff like that and i think that um, the the investigations are generally going to be of slack's customers not of slack that was going to be my next question your effort to attract more government agencies. How exactly do you intend to do that? How do you plan to handle some of these very sticky issues like privacy? Yeah, well, we have uh, government uh, customers in 20 different countries, and, and some of those have been long established. I think there's about 13 US federal agencies using Slack, but there's also state, local, municipal usage. There's usage in, um, in Australia, in the UK, in Japan, in France, in Germany, and um, the, the kind of benefit that Slack brings to any organization uh, that uses it are, are obviously there for the government as well. And I think there might be an opportunity to create a little bit more of a fabric that goes through the whole federal government because those agencies are pretty autonomous um, and it's much, much harder, kind of notoriously harder to, for them to coordinate uh, than it should be. All right, uh, Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield, always good to have you on the show. Thanks for checking out to our New York studios. Appreciate you stopping by. Coming up, new revelations from Elon Musk that could explain why he decided to lay off 10% of Tesla's workforce. That story next. This is Bloomberg. Musk says Tesla's new plants in Germany and Texas are losing billions of dollars as the EV maker tries to ramp up production. In a video just posted online that was taped three weeks ago, the Tesla CEO's comments offer new insight into the days leading up to his decision to cut costs by laying off employees. The staff reductions will affect about 10% of Tesla's salaried workforce over the next three months. 
Coming up, we are going to head to Toronto for a conversation with Jeffrey Katzenberg, fresh off a panel at the Collision Conference about disrupting legacy industries, something he knows a thing or two about. Plus, we'll get his thoughts on the current economic climate and where he's putting his money these days and a company he's invested in. That's all coming up next. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. It was a choppy day for tech stocks as the market tried to make up its mind on the Fed and risks of recession. Where do we land? Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow back to unwind it all. Ed? Yeah, so we're like modestly lower, right, across multiple indices, especially tech indices. Look at the Nasdaq 100 off by around two-tenths of 1%. Outside selling and semiconductors, chip stocks, some of the worst performers and biggest drags on, drags on both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100. You also see the MOSE FANG Plus Index, which is made up of those mega caps and some US-listed shares of Chinese tech companies, modestly lower, but they've been higher during the session. We kind of swung between gains and losses. The market trying to make up its mind about the Fed's ability to fight inflation without causing a recession. Don't take my word for it. Have a listen to Fed Chair Jay Powell. It is our goal. Uh, it is going to be very challenging. It has been made significantly more challenging by the events of the last few months, thinking there of the war and uh, you know, commodities prices and, and further problems with supply chains. And the, the, the question of whether we're able to, to, to accomplish that is going to depend uh, to some extent on factors that we don't control. So the market kind of seizing on the idea this is the biggest admission so far that there's a real risk of hard landing or recession. We had a lot of other things to say, right? The labor market still incredibly tight. The economy still incredibly robust. You've got some of the tech movers really interesting, especially in regards to the news cycle. Look at Amazon um, up a quarter of a percent news out of a leaked memo where Amazon's talking about the turnover in its workforce, for example, being very high relative to other industries, it being a real concern. Well, what happens to that labor market as we move towards a Fed that's fighting inflation, not just with interest rates, but the shrinking of its balance sheet? And the other name that just catches my eye with regards to the demand story, because according to Fed Powell, the demand is still there. Netflix up 4.7%. According to reports from the Wall Street Journal, considering an ad tier for one of its subscription models, basically ad support, in conjunction with names like Google, Comcast. You have some interesting guests coming up. I'd kind of be interested in their take about Netflix, one of the worst performers year to date, wasn't really participating in the rally of recent days, but having a great day on Wednesday. All right, interesting to say the least. Thank you, Ed. Well, despite fears that the U.S. is heading towards a recession as inflation drives up costs and some companies start layoffs, there was a more upbeat tone at this year's collision conference where 35,000 people showed up to hear about the future of technology. Joining me now from Toronto, Jeffrey Katzenberg, founding partner at Wonderco and former chair of Disney, also CEO of DreamWorks, of course, along with Hari Ravachandran. He is the founder and CEO of Aura, an online cybersecurity firm and one of Katzenberg's investments. Um, Jeffrey, Hari, thank you both for joining us. I know you've just been on stage talking about disrupting legacy industries. And Jeffrey, this is, of course, something you know a thing or two about. So tapping you as an investor first, 
Given everything you've seen, uh, everything you've tried to do, what industries do you see right now that are most ripe for disruption? Well, I, 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 whether it's right for disruption or not, I think that the uh, place of opportunity today that we're quite focused on, continue to be, uh, is on cybersecurity, uh, both for enterprise and for uh, the consumer. Um, I think it will uh, have faced less headwinds in a uh, down uh, recession economy than many industries. Um, also think the future of work uh, continues to be a place of, of great opportunity. The disruption out of uh, COVID uh, has been extreme in terms of the workforce and the tools that it needs today in terms of productivity, of collaborating, sharing, uh, uh, the moving of information and uh, people, I think, is going to be a place of tremendous innovation over these next couple of years. So there are bright spots, but no question, we're in for choppy times. Interesting. Hari, you know, there's an actually a huge number of cybersecurity unicorns out there right now, and especially, you know, many companies which, with, which raised at hefty valuations when times were good. How do you think Aura stands out on that list? Look, this is uh, my second go around building a business. Uh, the first time we went through the down cycle in 2000, 2001, again in 07, 08, and you learn a lot of lessons having been through the cycle. So uh, this time around, we're very focused on keeping the fixed core, the fixed cost of our business low, looking for opportunities where there's uh, availability for asymmetric risk reward payouts, whether it's M&A, organic uh, growth vectors, et cetera but keeping the core of our business quite tight and making sure that uh, we're mindful of cost, of burn, and uh, having raised a lot of capital last year, we're well set up, so it's, it's, it's really something that we have to stay focused uh, to make sure we're creating a lot of runway and continue to keep focusing on our product. Yeah, and the other thing, Emily, is, is that Aura is a mature business. It's got two million customers, almost 300 million of revenue. It's a profitable business. Um, and, uh, and, and a fair amount of wind in its sails right now in terms of its growth. So this is growth, but it's profitable growth. I think that sort of makes it, you know, in a slightly unique category right now. So, Jeffrey, I mean, given that you've also seen a number of downturns run companies through downturns, how pronounced do you think this one in particular is going to be? Is this a recession with a big R or a, li a little R? Is it inevitable? <laughs> you know what, I'm, I, you just went way above my pay grade, <laughs> Emily. And I, you know, I, 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 I just have to say, I, you know, I think, and this is what I admire so much about Hari and how he's running his business, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. And what I mean by that is, is that you know, he really has buttoned down his business. He's running it, you know, on a smart basis, on a profitable basis. But this is also a time of great opportunity. And there are going to be things for us to do, whether it's in M&A, um, uh, you know, direct to consumer, you know, the ad market's probably going to become more favorable. So there, there are, you, you got to be able to play offense and defense you know, at, this, at the same time. You need an offensive team and a defensive team, and that's what I think Hari has built well for this, for this company.
Well, speaking of offense and defense, in part the promise of cybersecurity is, you know, the, the, the ability to play really good defense. And we've been warned so many times about the threat from Russia in the midst of this ongoing war on Ukraine. Hari, how big are the threats out there on the cyber landscape? And how do you see that threat evolving as we go through this, you know, potentially pronounced economic crisis for six, 18 months or longer? I mean, I think it started with COVID. Uh, as people were moving more and more online, a lot more data started moving online as well. And you know, whether you're looking at sort of nation state to nation state attacks or you're looking at attack on enterprises, the interesting thing we see is some of those were prevalent, they're getting a lot more sophisticated, but the new thing that we're starting to see is there's an acceleration of the sophistication of attacks on families and consumers. So it's going all the way from nation to nation, to enterprise and consumers and family. Um, you know, I, I do think that over the next 12 to 18 months, the trend doesn't seem to be slowing down. From what we can see, there's a new variant of a different kind of an attack happening every week. Um, and, you know, uh, criminals seem to be uh, enjoying their work and uh, it's, show, it's showing at this point. So, so, Emily, an interesting statistic is, is that in the last 12 months, the amount of theft uh, digital theft versus burglary has actually now surpassed it. So there's actually more criminal activity, theft going on against all of us as consumers uh, on our digital footprint than in our homes and our apartments and around our physical goods. And that trend is actually accelerating. So th that value right now is, I think, in terms of what Aura is solving for, uh, is, you know, really, really strong and only going to get stronger. Jeffrey, I have to ask, given, of course, uh, what you saw with Quibi and your long history in the entertainment business, what is your thought on the collapse of so Netflix's can I, can stock? I, Emily, can I congratulate? <laughs> sure. So can, can I congratulate you on that? It took you eight, it took you eight and a half <laughs> minutes to say the word Quibi out loud. So I, thank you. It's, hey, I, I, it's you, you got you got the over. <laughs> you got the over, not the under, but go for it. Yes, I'm it sorry. Is not what did the you only, want to ask? It is not the only thing you're going to be remembered for if I have anything to say about it. But I, I do want to know what you think about what's happening in streaming right now, the collapse in Netflix's stock. You know, have we hit a peak and is it all downhill from here? No. Here's what I would say. You know, truly one of the great entrepreneurs of our time is Reed Hastings. You know, Everybody were naysayers a decade ago when he came along with this idea of streaming. They were all naysayers when he came along with this idea for, you know, binging of content. You know, there's so many things that, you know, popular opinion were contrary to him and his vision for that company. He's built a, a great company. There's no question that, you know, it is actually, you know, hit some, a rough patch for sure. The last thing I would do right now today is bet on Reed Hastings being down, let alone out. So you ask me, do I think, you know, what is the future of streaming? The future of streaming is going to be strong, likely more consolidation. So there's a lot more competition today. There's a lot more offerings out there today, more than all of us can consume. And so with that, there are going to be winners and losers. Do I think Netflix is going to be in the winner column? For sure. Is it going to see $700 a share soon? Mm, probably not. Hmm.
I wonder if you think Disney and CEO Bob Chapek are in the winner column too. I mean, obviously you have a long history there. Um, you know, we've seen you know some some tumult in the executive suite. You know, what does succession look like there, and how does Disney fit into the future of the entertainment business? A hundred percent, Disney will also be in that win column. You know, if you had to pick today, you would say Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, Warner Discovery. They're all going to, in some fashion, shape, or form, be in the win column. You know, once again, you know, Chapik has a complicated hand to play. Um, you know, uh, probably no company had more of its businesses adversely affected by COVID. I mean, literally, Broadway shut down, theaters shut down, theme parks shut down, cruise ships shut down. Do I have to keep going? And, you know, he's trying to navigate now, you know, sort of the next renaissance of Disney. It's a high bar, it's a big challenge. My guess is he's up to it. Jeffrey, I appreciate you humoring us and putting on your entertainment legend hat, uh, as well as your investor hat. <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg, Wonder Co., Hari Ravachandran of Aura, coming to us from the Collision Conference in Toronto. Thank you both. All right, coming up, Bitcoin dropping back to 20,000. How long can we expect the winter to last? And why are some folks still so optimistic? We'll discuss. And we will hear from the labor group that helped orchestrate the first successful unionization campaign at an Apple store. Why the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers says it is eager to sit down at the negotiating table. This is Bloomberg. For our crypto report, Bitcoin trading once again around the $20,000 level, moving in tandem with falling stocks. This is concerns about a global recession grow. And while some crypto companies are laying people off, others are more optimistic, even about the near future. I want to talk about all this and more with Bloomberg's own Hannah Miller. Hannah, Falcon X raising a big round today. How? In the midst of um, a very cold crypto winter. Yeah, no, it's an exciting company that's now valued at $8 billion, up from a $3.75 billion valuation from its last fundraise. And this is a company that is has a lot of interesting stuff about it. Its founder um, has a really impressive background. It was, form, it was formerly at Google. Um, and this funding round came together in the past few weeks, even as market conditions were changing. Uh, so it's super exciting, especially when you see other companies like BlockFi looking to raise at down valuations. Well, we're back to $20,000 for Bitcoin, but the CEO of Binance says the worst part is probably over. Is he right? I think CZ is being a bit optimistic here. Um, there's still a lot of fragility in the market. Uh, we could see trouble for other lending platforms. Uh, we've already seen Celsius and Babel hit. Um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty revolving around regulation and also security. You know, hacks and scams uh, have just been a lingering problem for the crypto industry. 
We've seen layoffs at Coinbase, layoffs at Robinhood. You know, when you're talking to your sources, talking to your companies, just how bad is it or how bad does it feel on the inside of some of these organizations? Yeah, so I've been told by multiple people to expect more layoffs in the future, that this is going to be a trend after a rash of overhiring last year. And basically, people believe that this crypto winter is going to last for another six months to a year, but that it will be shorter than the previous one because we have clearer uses for blockchain now. I'm thinking decentralized finance, gaming, and NFTs. That'll help people stay interested in uh, crypto and blockchain. All right, well, Hannah will continue to follow your reporting on all of this. Bloomberg's Hannah Miller, thanks so much. Coming up, Apple's first union and what it means for a potential wave of tech unions across the country. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. Tech has long been hostile to organized labor, but as of late, there have been some serious moves to change that. This past weekend, employees at a Maryland Apple store voted 65 to 33 to unionize. The move creates the first union of Apple retail employees in the United States. And running the campaign in Towson was the International Association of Machinists. David Sullivan, Eastern Territory General Vice President, joins us now to talk about this big win. And David, the votes we've seen at some of the Amazon warehouses have been a lot closer. Why do you think uh, Apple employees voted here almost two to one? Uh, we're, we're very pleased with the outcome of this. Uh, the workers in, in Maryland were uh, very excited. They were very involved in this whole process. They came to us uh, because of our presence in the community. And uh, we spent a lot of time with them over uh, the long period of time talking to them who we are, what we do. And they were just very, very excited about having the opportunity uh, to organize and have a say in their future. Now, Apple hasn't responded to this union vote directly, but in the past, as, as news about the forming of a possible union broke, they, they did tout their benefits. They've touted uh, the, what these workers are paid. Do you think this vote in Maryland will result in more unions being formed at Apple across the United States? I do, 100%. Uh, we've received many, many phone calls from across the country, from coast to coast right now. And uh, it's the, out, the outpour has been very good. It's, it's definitely a wave, and we're, we're very pleased with it. Workers had to put a lot on the line down in Maryland to stand up and, and have a say in their future. And we're hoping that other workers in Apple see that they were able to do it. Uh, they didn't buy into some of the anti-union rhetoric that was out there, that uh, the machinist union, we do a lot of good things. These are very highly skilled employees, and uh, we're a very highly skilled union. So we're very pleased that they, they were able to hold tight, hold strong. And when they walked out that door and you heard the screams, that was the sound we want to hear across this entire state, I mean, uh, country. How, how will Apple have to deal with the unions? Like, What kind of discussions and agreements will have to be had? Um, typically, what we'll do is we'll try to do a meet and greet. We uh, will send the letter. We're going to be certified, hopefully, uh, at the end of the week. Uh, it's usually about a seven-day process. We should be certified without any issues. Once we're certified, I'll send a letter to Apple, uh, to the CEO, and request uh, to meet with them. 
and then we'll start the process to uh, collectively bargain a contract for the employees. And what will change for workers at unionized stores? Uh, everything. Their whole world's going to change. They'll have the ability to have a say in their future. Uh, they'll have a, a voice on the job. Uh, scheduling's a big thing for them. They love their job. They do a lot of great stuff. And, you know, they connect people to these products that, you know, we can't figure them out. We go to these stores, we meet with them. Highly technical, highly skilled. They help us get our stuff together. You know, it's for them, I think that uh, because they do love their job, they want to have more say in like their schedule, uh, just anything to do with their future, working conditions, safety on the job. Uh, they'll have they'll have the ability to do that. Um, we're seeing a similar conversation happening at Amazon, and I actually spoke to Amazon CEO Andy Jassy about union efforts at Amazon warehouses. Take a quick listen to what he had to say. We happen to think they're better off without a union for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that you know, it's, it's much harder uh, when you have a union to have a direct relationship with your manager and to get things done quickly. How would you respond to that, David? Yeah, I think that's silly, to be honest with you, <laughs> just to be frank. Uh, for us, the, the union is, it's the people there, the people on site, the employees at that store, they are the union. They, they keep trying to say it's a third party coming in and they're going to not be able to be personal and, and have friendships. That's absolutely false, 100% not true. Uh, the union is the people, you know, on site there and the relationships can continue. We have great relationships with many, many companies that we work with. So uh, I wouldn't expect anything different from a CEO from Amazon. How long does a union last for? Will this have to be renewed? And is this going to be an ongoing fight even in, in Tosin, whether or not it happens beyond? No. What we'll do is we usually negotiate a contract, typically the three-year contracts. Uh, but once, once we're um, the officially, once it's officially certified, we'll be the bargaining agent for them. And hopefully it goes forever. And last quick question, you know, tech has so far been, you know, fairly immune to these kind of union negotiations. How do you imagine this could change the tech industry? We've got about 30 seconds left. Um, I think it's going to be a great change. I, I think that these are kind of the workforce that needs a union. Um, they've been typically, they're not a traditional, you know, what we would call a traditional union. Uh, so they've been kind of left behind on that. And now they're standing up saying they want more. Uh, they want to be able to negotiate over hours of work, working conditions, all the things that a union does. So I think it's going to, when, when workers around the country, uh, U.S. and Canada, see what we're doing, I think they're they're going to step up and want to be part of this. I'm very excited. I don't I don't think it's going to slow down. I think it's going to keep keep moving forward. All right, David Sullivan, General Vice President at the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Thank you. For joining us. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're back tomorrow with Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince, Proton Mail CEO Andy Yen to talk big tech privacy. You don't want to miss it. This is Bloomberg. busiest Premier League clubs in the early weeks of the transfer window with three new signings. Jamie O'Hara believes that with 
the right backing, Antonio Conte could build a squad capable of being a real force in the Premier League. We signed three good players before pre-seasons even started. That's unheard of business for Tottenham and it's brilliant to see players that we needed. And I think right now, and it's a big statement, but if you watch Jurgen Klopp, what he did at Liverpool, and it took three or four seasons before he had that unbelievable side where all of a sudden they started dominating. If we can keep Conte happy and the recruitment is absolutely bang on with the players that we need in specific areas, we could become like that Liverpool side. I'm not saying we'll achieve what Liverpool have achieved, but you could create a team with that manager which could be a real force in the Premier League. So I just hope that we keep Conte happy. We keep getting the players that he needs. And, you know, when you've got Kane and Son in your side, you've already got world-class players. You've just got to build around them. Yeah, keep Conte happy, says Jamie O'Hara. Our reporter, Michael Bridge, joins us now to talk more about Spurs. Um, three signings already done. Are we expecting more then? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. And, and Antonio Conte will want more as well. I think he mm. wants about, ideally, six is the number I keep hearing, but potentially even one more. Look, at the start of the summer, we were told about the £150 million investment from Enoch into the club, which Antonio Conte can have every penny for. It's not really been touched yet, if you think no. about it. They've signed Ivan Perisic on a free from Inter Milan, Fraser Forster on a free from Southampton, and Yves Basuma around leading up to around £30 million pounds from yeah. Brighton, which is a fantastic signing. It really is. A player they've liked for some time, widely known as Jed Spence, who had a fantastic year on loan at Nottingham Forest. I'm told, and it's widely known now, that he wants to come to Tottenham. Um, talks, more talks are expected. Daniel Levy personally leading the deal, while Fabio Paratici is, is on other signings, which... which might excite Spurs fans a bit more as well. Like with everything, exciting young player, they're still discussing the fee. Borough won at least £15 million plus add-ons. I think Spurs' argument is, well, you loaned him last season. So yeah, there, there should be a coming... Yeah, I mean, he did brilliant on loan. I mean, that goal there, stunning. Antonio Conte wants full-backs who are like attacking wingers, really, to be creative. And, and that's what Spence has done, and Conte's given the thumbs up. He wants someone like him, so I'm confident that one will happen. Yeah, it's a difficult one in terms of the fact that the fact that Forrest went up as well, it's kind of complicated the deal a little bit more, you'd think, because it makes him think, do I stay, the, you know, do I try and make a deal here? Or Yeah, for sure. I mean, Forrest, certainly keen, but I think the lure of Champions League football, which Tottenham yeah. can offer now, London, players like living in London as well, huge stadium. I, you know, I think he wants to come to Tottenham. But, yeah, it's a wait and see. But I think with that as well, Spurs would have him, Matt Doherty and Emerson Royal. I'd imagine one would leave. And if, if I was a guessing person, I'd say Emerson because I know there's clubs in the league who, who wouldn't mind taking him back. Let's talk about their departures then. Are you expecting a few to go? I do. Yeah, quite a number. Um, the first person I would probably expect to leave is Stephen Bergwijn. Very well liked at Tottenham. Uh, mm. He scored some good goals. That one there, that's on his debut, that was. But that's not happened enough. You know, he, he's done some good things on his day. He's had a few injuries. But 
Ajax won him massively, but the mm. problem is they they not paying the money. Now they they're selling Sebastian Haller to to Borussia Dortmund. Are we finally going to get a breakthrough? He would happily go there. There's been a little bit of tentative interest from Premier League clubs, but Ajax have been firm favourites to have him throughout. I expect that to get done. Quotes from the Dutch media when he was away in the Nations League saying he never got a chance, but. How do you dislodge Kulusevski, Son and Kane? I mean, it was very, very, very difficult. Other players, I think, who would leave the club, I think Giovanni Lo Celso will leave the club on a permanent deal. Villarreal or Atletico Madrid there. I think Joe Roden at the back might have a Premier League loan or a full transfer. Harry Winks has been told to find another club. There are a number of Premier League clubs who are thinking about him at the moment. I'm trying to stand up whether Everton is one of them at the moment. And of course, the record signing, Tangay on Dembele. They could have a problem there, Vicky, because he, he came with a lot of money, big wages, and I don't think he. there and welcome back to the dental marketing podcast this is the podcast where we try to provide you ideas and tips and hacks on how to improve your dental practice marketing and attract new patients i'm mark tony i'm the ceo of luci media we are a dental marketing company located in the northern suburbs of dallas fort worth and we have clients throughout uh, dallas fort worth Texas, and even in the states that surround Texas. Today, our topic is going to be about Google My Business. There's lots and lots of things that can be said about Google My Business. We're going to tackle some of the basic fundamental things about Google My Business. So let's kind of get underway right away on this. Google My Business. Did you know it's not called Google My Business anymore? It's actually now called, as of a few months ago, Google Business Profile. Google My Business is what everybody continues to call it, and that's what I think we'll refer to it as in this episode is, as well. But Google My Business is that panel that appears when somebody searches for your name on Google. It's the panel that appears off to the right that shows information about your practice. So maybe you or the owner of your practice or somebody in your practice has already claimed and verified your knowledge panel for Google. If you haven't done so, we really strongly encourage you to go out and do that as soon as you possibly can. We think at Lucha Media that Google My Business is the single best opportunity in the short term to generate new patients for your practice. Okay, and let me uh, talk about why that's important and how that shapes up here in the, the next couple of minutes here. 
So first and foremost, uh, Google My Business, uh, when you uh, apply for or claim your panel, will actually send you a notification of some sort that you have to verify. Now, believe it or not, up until just about the last year or so, uh, they, Google, would actually verify your knowledge panel by sending you a little three-by-five card in the U.S. mail. And it had a code on it. And that was the only way that you could actually verify it. Today, there's several other ways of uh, doing it. And so it's very important for your practice to get that done. So let's go ahead and then talk about what happens when you get that done. The next thing you're going to want to do is optimize your panel. Now, that's a maybe a fancy word or whatever uh, for what you need to do. The Google My Business panel has a ton of options uh, and elements that you can fill in that are going to help you show up in more searches. So let's just talk about how that works. Google My Business represents 155, at least that many, of the signals is what we call them, or elements that Google itself uses to determine whether to show your practice in searches that people conduct. And it's not just a search for the name of your practice. So if somebody, for instance, is looking for all on four or uh, teeth in a day and does a search on that in your area, you want to make sure that your Google My Business Knowledge Panel is filled out and has those words in it so that you may uh, be able to show up in that search, okay? So there's lots of things to do and, you know, they're going to be able to put, uh, you're going to be able to put in your address and phone numbers and, and all that stuff. And, and there's a lot of things that just flat out are common sense for what you want to do. But there's a few things, I think, along the way that when you are optimizing this panel that are not so much uh, common sense. So let's touch on just a few of those. Uh, first of all, service areas. So when you get into the admin side of your Google My Business panel, one of the things it's going to allow you to do is list the areas, the communities, the cities that your dental practice serves. And so what you want to do here is really take a look at, you know, that geographic location that you want to pull new patients from and make sure that you add each one of those cities separately, independently from another. Uh, add as many as you want in there, but make sure they're in there because then that's kind of the basic fundamental element that Google uses in the search. So just think about it. One of the, the main elements that Google's going to do when somebody searches for again, I'm going to go to all on four or teeth in a day, is what area is that person looking for? What's the location that the, that person's looking for? And so by listing those cities, that automatically sends a signal to Google that you're one of those locations that serves services or provides a service of all on four in, in those cities. So it's very important that you put that uh, location in there and don't necessarily limit yourself. I mean, just, you know, kind of as an aside here, just think about uh, the competitive nature of all on four teeth in a day, all on six, whatever you want to call it. 
just think about the competitive nature of that and how far some people will drive uh, to have that procedure done. So, you know, just think about all of those opportunities that you can uh, do with it. Uh, I think another thing that uh, is really important that most people don't know. So go look at your knowledge panel now. And, and as you kind of scroll down it, you'll come down to a section that's called questions and answers, right? So most people, most practices we've run into have not done anything with that, right? They're thinking that, okay, they are, uh, they, Google is looking for somebody to ask a question and somehow at some point you'll respond to that. Well, that is what that's there for, but that's not the only way to use it. Incredibly, perhaps, Google will allow you to ask your own question and guess what? And to answer your own question along the way. So here's a great opportunity for you to go in and fill out even more elements on your Google My Business panel. Um, and so we would recommend, and we do recommend to all of our dental uh, clients, that you go in there and you ask at least 10 questions. And then, of course, write the answers to those questions in there as well. But here's the other kind of tip, big tip. Not only should you do that, but guess what? This is an opportunity to use keywords, okay? Keywords are those things or keyword phrases are those ways and words that people use to search on Google or Bing or, or any of the other search engines. And so you should have five to six to seven, maybe as many as 10 different keywords or keyword phrases that you want to show up in a search for. So maybe one of those, again, let's say that all on four is one of those phrases. When somebody searches for, um, you know, all on four costs, you want to make sure that you show up in that search. So one of the questions you would ask, for instance, is how much does all on four cost? Just a simple question like that. But you can see that that phrase is in there. And so then when you go and write your response to it, what you want to do is use two or three times in your response that phrase, all on four cost. Because not only will the question help you show up in a Google search, but the answer will as well. And Google will use those uh, elements in that particular question and answer to help uh, show the, the best dental practices nearby that do all on four, okay? So you got to think through um, what you want to do there in terms of those questions and answers. Again, we think 10 questions uh, are good. And inside that 10, if we were working with you, we'd go, okay, we're going to write the questions using 10 different keywords that we want to rank for the most. And, uh, and the same goes then with the answers. Okay, so what's next? There's two or three other things, kind of basic things that you need to know about Google My Business that will start the process of generating new patients for you and your practice, okay? The first of all is to know that Google has invested fairly significantly in the past few months, maybe even less than the last six months, 
in beefing up the Google My Business panel, I've already told you they changed the name to Google Business Profile, but there's many other changes that are in there and that are in the works already. So we got to make sure that you uh, stay aware of these changes and that you continue to kind of optimize everything that um, Google My Business panel will offer. And so let's start with the other, the next item, and that's photos. So when you go to your Google My Business panel, you're going to see in the upper left of your panel, you're going to see something that says photos or sometimes owner photos. And then you're going to see an image that's supposed to represent um, your practice, the exterior of your practice. So have you ever seen that Google car drive around, you know, the one that's got all the cameras on the roof and all that sort of stuff? So that's where that image comes from. All right. You, if that image, I, I had one client that that actually, uh, the image that Google chose to show for their practice was the back of their practice, not the front door of their practice. And it looked awful. And so you actually can get that changed. It takes some time and effort and uh, kind of know-how on, on how you go about doing it. But we got that, that change. But the other one is photos. So one of the main things that Google wants you to do is keep your Google My Business panel active. They're almost looking at your Google My Business panel as a website. And so one of the things, the best practices, if you will, that Google wants you to do is frequently upload new information and new photos to your panel. So again, you go into the admin side of this. For our clients, we add at least three different images or photos every single week. These photos last for seven days, maybe a little bit longer. They're always there, mind you, but what is front and center only lasts that period of time. And Google does that as a way of getting you to go ahead and put more photos and new photos and encouraging you to do that. And not only you, but the users uh, or your patients who have come to your site, they're encouraging them also to do it in it. So it's really important. You can actually post those as uh, those photos as if they were like a social media post. You can put the photo up there and you can put uh, text in there uh, as well as a Google post. You can just add photos and images up there. But if you're not already putting new photos in there, we really strongly encourage you to start that practice. Somebody uh, at your practice, whether uh, it's the front desk area or somebody else that kind of has a passion for this, get them to upload uh, one or two uh, images at least every single week and then try to create posts out of those. So these are two different areas inside the Google My Business panel. One that's a post area that you can create a post and the other where you just upload uh, the images. But do what you can in there and guess what? What should you be writing in the text? We're back to those keywords and those keyword phrases again. The more times you can use those keywords and those keyword phrases, again, let's assume that we're taking 10 of those. The more time that you can put those phrases and keywords in there, the more likely you're going to show up in A, a Google search, and B, higher in a Google search. And that's really what it's all about uh, in terms of generating uh, new patients in there. One other thing you can do, offers. Google allows you to go ahead in your Google My Business panel and create 
an offer is what they call it. So think about it. Do you have an ongoing way? Do you have sort of like a baseline element, uh, an offer that's designed to get new patients into your dental chair so that you can get in their mouth and then have the opportunity to turn them into uh, a strong new patient and perhaps even a lifetime patient. So uh, you would want to use the offer in here. So for instance, let me just give you an example. For our clients, we really ask them to always have kind of like a an entry level uh, or a barrier level, if you will, uh, price offering for anybody who walks in the door. Often we'll say that that number is $49 for a, a new patient special, if you will, or something along those lines. Again, the goal of that is simply to get somebody into your practice and into your dental chair so you can see what type of work needs to be done and turn them in to an ongoing patient and perhaps a lifetime patient in there. So in this Google My Business panel, that is where you would put this offer. You would go ahead and it gives you a chance to put text and, and images in there. And so you'd create that and create that offer in there. And that offer then should generate new patients for you uh, as well. I think that's a, a terrific thing that most dental practices I've run into don't even touch or don't even think about. Finally, the other thing is if somebody's going to give you a review, you know, you've got a, a, a a patient, either a new one or an existing one that really likes you and, and the work you've done. And, and, you know, they're almost begging you, where can I review you? Or where can I say something nice about you online? Well, you want to send them to your Google, my business panel, because that is where reviews reside. And one of you, remember I told you earlier about those 155 signals. One of the big ones is how many reviews do you have and how many stars do you get? And then how many people uh, actually are reviewing you? How long was it till the last person reviewed you? Are they doing it frequently enough is what I'm trying to say. So look, we want to talk an awful lot in another episode about the value of Google reviews and uh, Facebook reviews and just reviews overall and how to maximize those. And in turn, let that be a way to generate new patients for you. But again, send people uh, whether they're checking out or whatever, uh, if they ask, even if they don't ask, you know, we have a lot of clients that just go ahead and hand them a card and say, if you had a good experience here today, we'd appreciate an opportunity to uh, have you write a review or hear from you. And uh, we want uh, you to send them to your Google My Business panel. Okay, so there is uh, five ideas that you can use today. Get with your team uh, or who, whomever is dealing with your Google My Business panel, get it maximized and optimized and all that sort of stuff. Now, you know, this is something that Lucci Media does every single day for our, our clients. Uh, we closely track it. We've got a person that specializes in Google My Business and all things there. It's that important to us in terms of generating new patients. So, if you need ideas or, or want some more information about it, or maybe you'd want somebody to handle this aspect of digital marketing for you, I encourage you to give me a call, okay, at 469-907-1057. Again, that number is 469-907-1057. Happy to talk to you about it and happy to talk to you about 
really any dental marketing ideas for your practice. See you next time. Jeff Ragavan, and welcome to Alchemy, the podcast all about building a business on the front lines of the new economy. Welcome back to this week's episode of Alchemy. Very excited. Had a very special guest today, Brett Novi. He's the CEO at Pharmacan. Brett, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jeff. It's good to chat. Brett, it feels like I was just talking to your team and, you know, we were saying, hey, it's been a while since Benzinga. It was only in April, but we were saying, oh, my God, it's, it feels like it's been ages just because there's been so much going on in the industry. So it's good to have you on here. You know, for everyone that's uh, tuning in right now, uh, Pharmacan is, you know, based in Chicago. They've been around since 2014 and they're the, one of the country's largest uh, vertically integrated uh, cannabis companies. And... Uh, you know, Brett has had several roles over there. I know, Brett, at one point, you were actually the CFO and the COO. And uh, now you're, you're the CEO. So you've had, you know, more than 20 years of experience in multiple disciplines. I mean, you were kind of in the finance realm, you were in operations, investor relations, biz dev, investment management. And, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about your background. Like, what made you actually get into cannabis? What was that kind of moment for you? Yeah, so my background was I would call it a traditionally trained accounting slash finance background. And then, yeah, my practice was more finance. Um, and so I started my career in the corporate restructuring practice at Arthur Anderson. So I'm, I'm aging myself for those. <laughs> some people may not even know what Arthur Anderson was. It was one of the, you know, at the time, I think it was big six uh, yep. accounting firms. But while I was on the, I was in the consulting side of the business doing restructuring, you know, so financial and operational restructurings for our clients at the time. That was a great experience for me. Carried on with that, uh, the sort of through the finance vein, and I went to work at a financial services firm. It was a trading firm. And what ended up happening was the two co-founders of that firm had a liquidity event. Uh, they sold the business is a better way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, exited that firm and then started a family office together. And that family office provided the seed capital for Pharmacan. And so obviously I had worked for these two gentlemen for probably six or seven years at the, at the time, maybe not that long, maybe like four years at, at the time that they made the investment into Pharmacan. And the Pharmacan initially, when it first started, it was uh, an amalgamation of licenses, basically four dispensary licenses and two cultivation processing licenses in Illinois, mm -hmm. and then licenses in uh, uh, New York as well. And so the first early days of Pharmacan was spent building out that infrastructure to open those facilities. And when Pharmacan was right around the time was ready to start generating revenue, that's when I got a phone call from these two gentlemen and they needed there. They said, Hey, we could use some, someone with some financial acumen 
mm -hmm. to help the company as we're about to, you know, start ramping up revenues and, and starting our operations. And I just believed, I believed in the industry. I believed in, uh, you know, the social equity aspect of the industry. I believed in the health benefits of the plant. And I believed that net incrementally, what we were going to do could really improve people's lives relative to, to the status quo, right? Where cannabis was completely illegal. And so I thought it, for me, it seemed like once in a generation type opportunity. And I also had the comfort of, of knowing the financial backers well. Uh, I sat down and had a meeting with Teddy Scott, who was the co-founder of Pharmacan at the time. And we just absolutely hit it off. And so when I left Teddy's office that day, I knew that I was going to do this. And so I came over in a financial financial role. And then just by the evolution of the business, right, we continued to win licenses. We continued to expand our operations. We continued to look at M&A transactions. I just took on more and more and more uh, responsibility. And that eventually dovetailed into an operational role where it was CFO, COO, and then roughly about three years ago, I took on the CEO role. And, and so here I am today. I love it. Brett, you know, I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what's happened across the Northeast. I know you guys are based in Illinois, um, but obviously, you know, New York, New Jersey kind of coming on board for REC finally, uh, which is insane that it's taken this long. But, um, you know, talking a little bit about the New York market, you know, you guys were really one of the, I think, the original 10 license holders in the state. Original so, five initially, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. And so I'm just curious from you guys, you know, one, like how are you guys navigating the regs today and really prepping for the recreational launch? I know there's a lot of questions uh, in New York right now. I, I think from a consumer standpoint, people are really, you know, they want it and they're waiting. And, you know, for the mo I would say for the most part from like a standard consumer, you know, who's not in our industry that's just looking to purchase they're kind of in the dark, right? So, you know, maybe you can give us a little bit of, uh, shed some light on what, what you guys are doing preparing for the recreational launch. And what do you think of, you know, the New York, New Jersey market in general? Yeah, sure. So, so one thing you said, Jeff, but really, like people want it. Um, and I, I'd say that it's coming, right? Which is great because there's sort of um, the certainty about that where there hasn't been much clarity on the timing of the transition of New York historically, it's been a really long developing medical only market. And so recreational cannabis is coming and we're really excited about that. And people should be excited about, you know, New Jersey and New York, this is all part of sort of the long-term secular growth story that will be cannabis in the United States. And just looking beyond next year, you know, you're looking beyond New Jersey and looking beyond New York, then we'll, uh, 12 months from now, we'll be talking about Pennsylvania and Ohio and Maryland. And so it's very exciting, right? As my point is the, the thesis for the change is playing out in real time. And the, and the long-term long story remains intact, which is irrespective of sort of what's happening in this country and in the world from a macroeconomic perspective right now, which is, you know, concerning to say the least. So Specifically, what are we doing for New York? Well, we've been working, we're looking for some visibility uh, on what the final regs will be. And the OCM is is going to put these out in sort of, um, I'll call it packets. That's not the right word, but for 
for, <laughs> you know, they've, they've released some regs already around packaging and we expect more clarity over time um, between now and the end of the year with respect to what the final regs will look like. But there's certain things that we do know. Um, we do know that there's, we believe that we're going to be a very, very important part of ensuring product supply to all the various dispensaries and all the various processors. And so because of that, we've started an expansion project of our New York cultivation and manufacturing facility that'll basically quadruple our output. Um, and, and it'll be a much better, higher quality product because we're taking what I'll sort of call our version 1.0 greenhouses in New York and, and for the most part transitioning those to uh, indoor grows, more traditional indoor type grows. So that's one of the things we're doing on the cultivation and manufacturing side. And, and we also have visibility into a framework where we will have eight stores in total. They'll all be medical stores. And then in addition, three of those will allow for the co-location of medical and adult use sales. And so we're sort of figuring, you know, we're starting to get uh, the our our store, the redesign with the POS and I trying to identify uh, the, the, the best locations to locate these stores throughout the state. So there's things like that that are occurring right now. And I think what you'll see is over the next 90 to 100 days, a lot more clarity around the regs, which will be very helpful for us because it'll, it'll allow us to ensure that um, you know we could help support the adult use market and ensure and, and ensure its success. Yeah, I, you know what I find very interesting, obviously, from being a resident in New York and a lot of friends who you know have partaken in the industry for a while. I get friends that are like, "Hey, Jeff, have you heard of this brand before? It's so great!" And I look at it, I'm like, "That's not a brand. I'm like, that's not actually. I've never heard of it before. It's an illegal product." And um, because it's recreational right now quote unquote, legally, right? And people are allowed to, you know, carry cannabis, consume cannabis. There's this really weird gray area right now that is just, it's rampant. And I, it's definitely a problem uh, because people who are in New York have never been exposed to purchase uh, legal cannabis before, right? And so they think because it's legal now, any, you know, mom and pop could just build a product, launch a product, you know, not following any regulations. And so, I wonder how that's going to impact, you know, as more retailers come on board, right? And as, you know, we have a more defined expectation of when that's going to launch. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's weird. Um, I'm sure there's other markets that have dealt with this before, like once it was passed, uh, but I see it all the time. Exactly. It's not the first time, right, that uh, we've seen this in this industry. And it'll be a process and it'll become more clear over time. And the packaging the packaging regulations will be a big part of sort of the education here. And I think that it'll be really important. The whole premise of this industry is to allow for those people that are currently engaged and that to come into the regulated market and we want, and we want to support them in the regulated market. And so that's the end goal. So it's, it's, it's very exciting for me because everybody can be aligned and we can create win-win wins situations for everybody the customers win the operators win the state wins it's 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 a very unique type 
situation. Not many uh, win-win-win situations uh, in 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 uh, business these days. So it's it's exciting to be a part of it. Yeah, I think too. You know, Brett. One thing that's super exciting is you know I feel like the last three years have been a blur for most people just because of COVID, and you know no one really knows what year it is anymore uh, because we lost two years, right? Uh, but I think for the cannabis industry, which has been so interesting to watch, is that you know COVID obviously accelerated um, our industry, right? Sweeping legalization, cannabis deemed essential, right? If you remember back in the day, two years ago, you couldn't get a haircut, but you could buy weed, right? And so I think as we've seen legalization expand across the country, like like dominoes, you know, consumer expectations have now kind of started to um, rise in what they would like to see, right, from a, from a retail experience, right? Because now people have been to uh, dispensaries, they've experienced, you know, some really bad ones, and they've experienced some really amazing, you go walk into a store, and you're like, wow, this is not only beautiful, but everyone's so nice, and they're helpful. And so what are you guys doing at Pharmacan as far as, you know, really building out a leading you know, customer retail experience when it comes to your locations? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something it's there's it's been an evolution for us over time. If you think about the initial markets we were in, in order to win a license, we designed dispensaries that looked like doctors' offices and had a process, like the, the patient would go through a process similar to being at a doctor's office. Right. And so it's been a journey to for us, we started at the most conservative type of medical focused 30 to 40 minute consultations with every person, every visit, if that's what they wanted. And now we are evolving to just a traditional retail type model. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've sort of had to change our mindset and change our approach. You still want to offer that service, that touch, that uh, sort of that, you know, that medical type experience to people that want that experience. But over time, as people become more comfortable and, and more knowledgeable and more educated on the plant, you know, they'll shy away from that. That's kind of becoming a, more of a transactional type um, experience for, for people that are familiar with what they like and what all the various product forms are, et cetera. And so it's still complicated, although we're moving more towards just a traditional retail, it's still complicated in the sense that you have to offer the high touch and the light touch you have to offer pick up in store for those that just want to be in and out in a split second. So, so, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, we're making sure and we're designing our stores so that we could try to, we could try to engage, give a great experience to every single customer and or patient, however they choose, however they would like to engage with us as a, as a, um, you know, a, a dispensary. So, yeah, I think you just actually, you nailed it right there. And I think that's something that's definitely on the mind of a lot of MSOs. And, you know, we saw this and we, we actually, I don't know if you saw the news this past week, but we just uh, bought a company called 916, which is um, these incredible screens that are fully transactional and touchscreen. Um, so they're very interactive. And what's great about it is that, you know, they can now go into these dispensaries if you're a consumer. And let's just say you've been in there t- 20 times, you know exactly what you want. You go right in, you put your, your order on the screen, you put all your information in and you just go pick it up at the window. You don't have to talk to anybody and you could get in and out real fast. And so 
I'm glad that you said that because we've been seeing that as well. And that's why we made that acquisition because, you know, obviously at Philo, we do so much when it comes to compliance and media and retail solutions. So this is just adding to the flywheel. So super, it's super cool. And, you know, you got to change with the times based on the consumer demand and needs. So um, I'm glad that you actually said that. Um, You know, I wanted to ask you just because you've kind of been in multiple roles from, you know, finance to operations to, you know, running a company and, you know, what really does it take to lead a successful MSO in, you know, today's rapidly changing landscape? It's so difficult. It's a big question, Brett, but I think yeah. it's a really good one. So there's all these things popping into my head, but I'll, I'll start with a few. One is communication is so important and it's so hard, especially with you know, we have 52 dispensaries across eight states, 10 cultivation processing facilities across eight states. And you think about that dispersion of, of the employee base, it's very hard to, to have a solid line of communication with everybody at, at, at the same time and make sure everybody understands, hey, this is the a strategic initiative and this is why we're doing it. And, you know, it, it, that, that's that's difficult. So communication from the leadership team to their various team, their various team members, um, cross functionally and then geographically, is very hard and critically important. And 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 quite honestly, that's why we tried to get people together as much as possible at our corporate office. You just find it's very efficient to have everyone together working together, and instead of trying to litigate something over email. For a day and a half, you could have a, a two-minute conversation in the hallway, and 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 so so that's one part of it. The other part, I would say, is we call it fail fast, which is you know you're making decisions very quickly based on the information that you have at the time, and facts and circumstances can change, or the conclusion you reach based on a certain set of data might be wrong and that's okay like i'd rather have people take the information they have make a decision and then realize that it's not working and pivot then sort of double down dig in their heels and say you you know hey this isn't working but i'm gonna force it to work or find a way to make it work right so we always say fail fast so it's sort of in the vein of being fluid, being dynamic, being willing to adapt. That's the other um, big part. And then lastly, it's just you have to patient. You, you just have to be very, very patient because which, which is kind of a weird thing to say because everything in this industry is moving so fast, but also things in this industry are moving very slowly. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. if you think about SAFE and 280E and... God, I was building financial models for the company back in 2016 that assumed there'd be no such thing as 280E by 2019, right? Well, that's obviously not the case. So while some things are moving fast, others are moving slow. So you just have to sort of be patient, just realize everything's going to take two times, three times longer than than you expect and try to bake that in. Very, very good insight. And I'm actually going to take that from you fail fast because I love that one. Um, so Brett, you know, before we break, I think one thing that I, you know, wanted to also bring up, obviously the public markets right now are 
insane. Um, I don't think, I think many of us try not to look at our accounts on a daily basis these days. Uh, but I know that you guys were in talks about a year ago about going public. And so just curious on any plans on, you know, IPOing, any pros and cons, you know, I mean, I think right now it's, uh, it's kind of a brutal time, uh, you know, in the, in the public markets, but just curious on what you guys were thinking there. Yeah, certainly. So we've made it known that we plan to be public at some point. Uh, the market will kind of dictate that timing, obviously. Yeah. It's hard to say exactly when I think there's I, when I speak to uh, our investors, I, I, I speak to sort of the catalyst that I think need to be in place in order to have the opportunity for us to effectively execute an IPO. Right. So mm -hmm. what are those catalysts? And we talked about two of them early on. New Jersey. New Jersey's going to have there's going to be great numbers coming from the people that are currently in New Jersey. There just is. We've seen it time and time again. Every quarter, it's going to continue to build. Q3 is going to have some number. Q4 is going to be build off Q3. So you're going to have some really good data coming out of New Jersey. New York, Q1 of 23, you're going to get some really good data coming out of, out of New York. Hopefully, this year, we'll have something passed in Congress uh, that related to safe banking. And to me, while that's a catalyst of itself, what... I believe the market's really going to read into that is, wow, we actually passed some sort of cannabis legislation in this country. So now the country's sort of ready and primed to pass the next piece of cannabis legislation, right? So I think that that's really going to be the biggest part of something like a safe getting passed. So that'll be a nice tailwind. Then you're getting, you're going to get into like, you know, Q1, Q2 of next year, and we're going to start talking about the next cluster of states that are going to legalize mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland. And that's the kind of environment that that's ripe for companies to IPO, you know? Great insight. So, Brett, listen, really appreciate you coming on the show. Good to see you in person. Good to see you digitally. Um, and lots of great stuff happening over there. So, appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy day. Yeah, it was fun, Jeff. We'll catch up soon. Awesome. Thank you, Brett. See you, bud. This episode of the Alchemy Podcast was brought to you by Philo. Thanks for tuning in. And if you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and share. Audio Jungle.